Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and releases in February of 2020, but can be pre-ordered now. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource or pre-order from your favorite online retailer. And now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Millions of people visit New York City every year, over 65 million, and sometimes I'm one of them. No city in the world has more to see, from Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty to the skyscrapers and the cityscapes to world-class museums and delightful eating. There are over 26,000 restaurants in New York. And then, of course, there's the shopping and the walking and the pulsating excitement of the city that never sleeps. Way down on the list for most people, but high on my list, are sites related to the American Revolution. Let me explain. When the pilgrims came to America, they landed further north than they had expected. They landed at Cape Cod, and during the ensuing Puritan migration, the city of Boston was established. That's also where the American Revolution began. The Boston Massacre occurred in 1770 when a small British army detachment shot into a mob, killing five people in Boston. Three years later, a group of Bostonians protesting the tax on tea disguised themselves as Mohawks and invaded British ships, tossing 342 chests of tea into the harbor. That, of course, was the famous Boston Tea Party. Tensions continued to rise. In April of 1775, British troops marched from Boston to Lexington and Concord, where the first shots were fired. As I explain in my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, the first shots in Lexington were fired at a Christian pastor named Jonas Clark and his church members. They were ready to fight for the religious and political freedoms their forefathers had sought to establish. Later that same year, open conflict erupted in the Battle of Bunker Hill. The Continental Congress, which was meeting in Philadelphia, appointed George Washington to oversee the army, and he left for Boston. In short order, he had seized Dorchester Heights, that was on March the 4th of 1776, and that prompted the British to abandon Boston. Boston, then, is known as the birthplace of the American Revolution, but British and American forces withdrew and never really returned to New England, at least in a significant way along the coastline. The war shifted to New York City, even before the Declaration of Independence was adopted. Why New York? You might want to take time to look at a map. New York has one of the largest and finest natural harbors in the world. There's a wedge, like a giant alcove, a lower bay, along the Atlantic coastline between New York and New Jersey. And there's a further protective passageway between Staten Island and Brooklyn leading into Manhattan. Today, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge spans the entrance to the enclosed upper bay and New York Harbor. 
The harbor made New York a place of strategic importance, and it also occupied, of course, a more central location in the colonies, linking together New England with the southern colonies. So the war shifted from New England to New York about the time the colonies declared their independence in 1776. To me, the most fascinating Revolutionary War site in New York City is Brooklyn Bridge. Of course, the bridge itself wasn't there at the time. It wasn't built until the 1800s, but it was constructed very near the site of that remarkable, almost miraculous evacuation of Washington's forces from Brooklyn. This is what happened. The highly trained and disciplined British forces sailed into New York with 32,000 troops and disembarked on Staten Island in June of 1776. Observers who saw the forests of masts swaying in the wind said it looked as if all of London had gathered to wage war. It was the largest, most powerful naval and military force ever sent forth from Britain or from any other nation. Truly, apart from the providence of God, Washington's ragged little army of untrained troops had no chance. The British attacked the colonial troops in the lower regions of Long Island and what is today called Brooklyn. This is actually what is now known as the largest battle of the Revolutionary War, and the battle is usually today called the Battle of Long Island or the Battle of Brooklyn. The ill-prepared American army was pushed into Brooklyn Heights, overseeing the East River where they were trapped. And Manhattan, if you're visiting there and you go to Pier 16 or 17, that's where you can take the Circle Line sightseeing cruises, you can look across from there across the East River and get a very good view of Brooklyn Heights, where Washington's army faced annihilation. It seemed almost inevitable that the American Revolutionary Army would be destroyed and the war lost less than two months after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Late on the afternoon of August 29, Washington gave the order to retreat across the East River into Lower Manhattan. The escape of 9,000 War-weary, rain-soaked troops across a mild-wide river was a desperate gamble. If the British cut on, the entire army would have been decimated. Many of the men wrote their last wills and testaments on the spot. Just after nightfall, the weakest warriors headed for the Fulton Ferry landing as the retreat began. Immediately, the weather became an ally. A strong northeast wind kept British ships down at Staten Island, and they were unable to venture into the harbor itself. And yet, at about 11 p.m., the wind died down, which allowed Washington's hastily assembled armada to cross the river in relatively calm weather without danger. Sympathetic New York and New England sailors and fishermen mobilized, loading soldiers, horses, wagons, cannon, and all manner of equipment onto the boats. The wagon wheels were wrapped in cloth to muffle their sounds on the cobblestones, and not a word was spoken. The soldiers were told not to cough or to make any sounds, and orders were passed through the ranks by whispers. Campfires were kept burning to deceive the enemy. All night long, boats silently fared the army back and forth across the river, yet when the sun arose, a large portion of the army was still trapped in Brooklyn. But a fog had rolled in during the night, as thick as velvet, shielding the remaining evacuees, and it remained until the evacuation was completed. One soldier wrote, In this fearful dilemma, fervent prayers went up to him who alone could deliver. 
As if in answer to those prayers, when the night deepened, a dense fog came rolling in and settled on land and water. Under the cover of this fog, Washington silently withdrew his entire army across to New York. Another eyewitness said, It was one of the most anxious, busy nights I ever recollect, and being the third in which hardly any of us had closed our eyes to sleep, we were all greatly fatigued. As the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in the trenches became very anxious for our own safety, and when the dawn appeared, there were several regiments still on duty. At this time, a very dense fog began to rise off the river, and it seemed to settle in a peculiar matter over both encampments. I recall this particular providential occurrence perfectly well, and so very dense was the atmosphere that I could hardly discern a man at six yards away. We tarred until the sun had arisen, but the fog remained as dense as ever. In the history of warfare, I do not recollect a more fortunate retreat. After all, the providential appearance of the fog saved a part of our army from being captured, and certainly myself among others, who formed the rear guard. Well, when the fog lifted, the Americans were gone. They had escaped from Brooklyn across the East River, into what is today known as Lower Manhattan. Historian David McCullough wrote, The immediate reaction of the British was utter astonishment that the rebel army had silently vanished in the night under their very noses was almost inconceivable. The American forces retreated to the north of Manhattan, above today's Central Park, and through Harlem to one of the highest points in the island. More about that in a moment. So the evacuation occurred near the current site of the Brooklyn Bridge, and it has been called the Colonial Dunkirk. The fervent prayers of the army were answered. My favorite walk in New York is across the Brooklyn Bridge, and on a recent trip I searched the Brooklyn side under the bridge for some historical marker or commemoration of the evacuation. I finally found a single faded panel beneath the bridge in the gentrified Dumbo area that said, Evacuation Site, Fulton Landing. The marker read, Near this location, the American Army retreated across the East River to Manhattan after its disastrous defeat in the Battle of Brooklyn on August 27, 1776. Badly outnumbered and cornered by British troops under the command of General William Howe, the Americans were on the brink of annihilation when Washington pulled off a daring nighttime withdrawal. At sundown on August 28, 1776, he quietly moved the remnants of his army, some 90,000 men, down from Brooklyn Heights to the Brooklyn Ferry Landing. Throughout the night, covered by a thick fog, a regiment of fishermen carried the men across to New York in rowboats, barges, sloops, and canoes. When the sun came up on August 26, 1776, says the marker, Howe discovered to his astonishment that Washington had escaped to fight another day. Instead of ending in the hills and fields of Brooklyn, the Revolutionary War would continue for another seven years. The historical panels are just to the right of the bridge when facing the East River in Manhattan, but as best as I can ascertain, the actual crossing was just left of the bridge at the side of the Fulton Landing, 
and if you walk under the bridge and to the left side, you'll see a marker embedded in the concrete beneath your feet marking the site of the Fulton Ferry Crossing. Anywhere else, such a momentous and providential historic site would be at the very top of the list of tourist attractions, but in New York you have to search to find where this event occurred. Well, as I said, the surviving American forces fled up the middle of Manhattan, through the valley that runs through Central Park, and on up to one of the highest vistas, where Washington commandeered the Morris Mansion for five weeks and set up his headquarters before continuing the retreat up the Hudson River, across the river and down to New Jersey, and on to Pennsylvania. The Morris Mansion is still standing, and it's worth a visit. Today it's the oldest surviving house in Manhattan, a beautiful two-story mansion with four great columns and a wide front porch. It was built just a decade before the Revolution in 1765 as a summer house for British Colonel Roger Morris and his wife. At that time, the city of Manhattan was confined to the lower tip of the island, and it was filthy, muddy, overcome with sewage, and it was humid and hot in the winter, a rather unpleasant place. Colonel Morris built this mansion several miles up the island, and the view encompassed New Jersey, Connecticut, and all of New York Harbor. When the war broke out, Colonel and Mrs. Morris abandoned the mansion, so Washington moved into it for five weeks in 1776. You can go there, see his office and bedroom, and get a sense of what the Revolutionary War was like in real time. To visit it, just take the C train on the subway and exit at 163rd Street, and it's right around the corner. Now back to Lower Manhattan, not far from where Washington set his foot on shore following the evacuation. There was a building which later became known as Federal Hall. That's where Washington was later inaugurated as the first president of the United States. It's on Wall Street, just a good stone's throw from the evacuation site. The retreat occurred, as I said, in 1776, and Washington's inauguration occurred 13 years later in 1789. I opened my book 100 Bible Verses That Made America by describing Washington's first inauguration. It happened on April 30th, 1789 at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Washington stepped onto the crowded second-floor balcony of that old federal building and took his place beside a large decorative Bible. A thunderous roar erupted from the sea of people on Wall Street, followed by tense silence as everyone strained to hear the man's voice. General Washington was dressed in a modest, double-breasted brown suit with buttons embossed with eagles. A sword dangled at his side. His face was careworn. The Bible before him, bound in rich brown leather, had been hastily barred from the altar of the nearby St. John's Lodge. It rested on a red cushion held by Samuel Otis, the Secretary of the Senate, and it was open to Genesis 49, the passage containing the blessings of Jacob to his twelve sons who were destined to become a great nation. After placing his hand on the Bible, the general began repeating the oath of office which was administered by Robert Livingston, the Chancellor of New York. As Washington finished the final words, he did something extraordinary. To the thrill of the crowd and in full view of posterity, he moved his hand from Genesis 49 and then reverently bent over and he kissed the Bible. The multitude burst into cheers, 
shouting, yelling, weeping, and rejoicing as the father of their country quietly turned and disappeared into the building to give his inaugural address to members of Congress. In his speech, Washington said, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. He said the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of right and order which heaven itself has ordained. There's no doubt that he meant the Bible, and he was saying thereby that the smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the Bible. Well, unfortunately, the old federal building was later torn down. But today you can visit a vast colonnaded hall that sits on the site with a huge statue of George Washington standing where he originally took the oath of office. Inside the hall you'll find the Bible used for the inauguration along with models, replicas, and other fascinating artifacts. Just a couple of blocks away is the site of the 9-11 Memorial. This is also the area of the Fulton Street Revival where the Great Awakening of 1857 began, which swept across the nation. Not far away, by the way, is the birth home of Theodore Roosevelt. The original house where Roosevelt was born was torn down, but very quickly restored, just as it was in Roosevelt's youth, and it's well worth an hour or so. Furthermore, you're only steps away from great views of the Statue of Liberty. So much history in such a small area. Well, returning to the American Revolution, there are other sites in New York City that I've not yet visited. They're on my next list. Fort Washington in the north, which was the highest natural point in Manhattan and the site of a terrible disaster for the Patriots. There's also City Hall Park, where the Army first heard the Declaration of Independence read to them, and where Nathan Hell is honored with a statue. Nathan Hell is arguably the most famous martyr of the Revolution, and the actual site of his execution is probably near the intersection of today's 66th Street and 3rd Avenue. St. Paul's Church, where Washington worshipped, is also worth a visit, at his Trinity Church in the gravesite of Alexander Hamilton, who died in a house somewhere in Greenwich Village following his duel with Aaron Burr on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. There are several other spots I've wanted to visit, but so far I've not had a chance. Fonce's Tavern, the main meeting place for the Sons of Liberty and the tavern where Washington said goodbye to his officers after the war, and the monument in Fort Greene Park in Brooklyn, which commemorates the thousands of American revolutionary POWs who died amid great suffering aboard British POW ships. Beneath that monument are buried the bones of many of these patriots, bones that washed up on shore in the years following the revolution. They died in the ships and were thrown overboard. As I said, so much history and such a little space, and yet it swallowed up amid the skyscrapers of America's greatest city. Well, I want to encourage you to use this podcast for ideas and do some research on your own 
and take your family, maybe your children, and visit the Revolutionary War sites in New York City. The next time you visit the Big Apple, think of God's hand of providence from the Battle of Brooklyn to the miraculous evacuation of the colonial troops to the inauguration of George Washington to the Fulton Street Revival to nearby Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty to the home of Theodore Roosevelt and, of course, the 9-11 Memorial. All of that within just a few city blocks. This is Robert J. Morgan. To learn more about God's hand in American history, check out my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. Thank you for listening. Until the next time, the Lord bless you truly. The Lord bless you richly.